You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. Today on the Leaders and Legends podcast, we have an iconic figure in Indianapolis history. It's, It's a somewhat infamous time or day. For many of us who remember it, I was just a kid, but we're here with Richard Hall, who was kidnapped at shotgun point, actually, by a deranged, angry lunatic named Tony Caritzis. And we're going to talk about that for the next 45 minutes to an hour and talk a little bit about uh, how he recovered through the help of friends. And we can't say enough for you joining us today, Mr. Hall. Thank you. Glad to be here. Where are you from originally? Indianapolis. And where'd you go to high school? Shortridge. Did you go to Shortridge with anyone famous? Well, there was Kurt Vonnegut and Dan Wakefield and some of those boys. Did you know Mr. Vonnegut? No. No, he was uh, ahead of me. How many years ahead of you would Luger have been? Three. So you were a freshman when he was a senior? That's correct. But after Shortridge, after high school, what did you do next? I went to Purdue. Studied uh, mechanical engineering and graduated in 1957. And then you served your country? Yes. I went to Purdue on an NROTC scholarship. And uh, after graduation, I was commissioned an ensign and I went to Navy flight school. What made you come back to Indianapolis? Well, I was born and raised here and uh, we had a family business. I decided to go in the family business, so that was the reason. And the family business was a mortgage business, correct? The family business was more than a mortgage business, but the mortgage company was a part of our business. And your family had deep roots here with with your multiple generations, or did they move? My dad uh, was born in Hancock County along with my mother. And uh, Dad started the business during the Depression at Washington State Bank uh, after graduating from Purdue in agriculture. One of the points of the Leaders and Legends podcast is to talk to people who have made an impact on the city, helped change it, make it what it is today. As you remember, it was relatively small, dreary, and, and not all too exciting place 60, 50 years ago. Does it matter to you that in when they discuss the litany of, of things and big events in Indianapolis, um, that, that your experience with Caritas, which we'll get to in just a second, 
is one of the things that's listed. There are these landmark benchmark events in the city's history, some of it positive growth and some of it more crime related for lack of a better term. Does it offend you or bother you that you're part of that litany? I guess I would probably say that I I would rather not be a part of it. You worked for Meridian Mortgage and you worked there for quite a while and you uh, your company, if not necessarily you personally, and I want to talk about that, a fellow named uh, Tony Caritzis, who, if memory serves, was was it a Pontiac salesman? He was a car, or he was a car loan. I think at one time he he uh, sold Cadillacs, if I'm not mistaken. But he he had a business with Meridian Mortgage. The only business he had with Meridian Mortgage was he solicited a loan on a piece of, so you could buy a piece of ground on the west side. And that's a pretty common transaction for a mortgage company. And You say yes to a lot of people, and you say no to a lot of people. That's correct. But he felt like he had been told no unfairly, or he had been treated unfairly. Is that fair to say? Yes, that's what, that's what caused the whole... Uh, uh, kidnapping situation, hostage situation, was the fact that we asked for our money back. And did he refuse to give it to you, or did he say, I'll give it to you, but I'm being treated unfairly? Well, we had, it was after about uh, three extensions. Uh, We had conditions that he would pay it back in the year or two years, and we extended it to three or four years. And he didn't take this into account during his episode i can't really say what he took into account he had offers uh, for three four times what we loaned him the money and he turned them down did he ever give a reason why no so did you have dealings with him prior to the day that he walked in to abduct you that were reasonable or were you starting to think okay this guy's starting to lose it a bit that uh, we began to get concerned that, uh, in fact, he was kind of pressured by my dad into accepting uh, a, a, an offer on half his property for $500,000. That's a significant amount of money today, let alone 1977, mm-hmm. 76. So if I have the date correct, it's February 8th. 1977? It's, that's the day he walked into my office, right? So I was nine. I just turned nine. And I remember it well, if only because of something we'll talk about in a second, and that is Chris's press conference. But there had never been a news event covered to that extent in the local media market, especially local television. And we want to talk about that, too, because that's kind of what leads to the notoriety even to this day. And we're very grateful. We have Richard Hall on the podcast on Leaders and Legends. He was abducted on February 8th, 1977 by Tony Kritzis in a singularly harrowing um, crime in Indianapolis history. He walks in. Does he come right up to you and and, and abduct you or does he put on a little act before he finally snaps again? 
No, he was waiting for me in the lobby, and he was sitting with his arm in a sling, and he had mercurochrome all over his hand, and he was carrying a box, uh, like a uh, heir's garment bag or box, and uh, he had made an appointment, so I expected him to be there, and uh, so it was. Uh, and then we went from there into my dad's office, and it was that was when he leveled a, a handgun at me and uh, said that uh, he was going to strap this shotgun to my head, and we proceeded from there. Actually, if I may, he uh, he had a set of plans in his hands, and uh, I knew that he was trying to develop and there was something. He used the ruse that he wanted me to look at his plans, so I spread them out on the table, and then he came up behind me, and that that's how the whole thing started. Did you have any expectations prior to this meeting, like, okay, this is going to go well, we can finally dispose of this and move on to the next thing? I mean, did you have any expectations one way or the other? No, I had no expectations. In fact, I didn't deal with Caritzis. I'd only met him about twice before he'd, uh, before the incident. Uh, he dealt with my dad and other members of the Marine Mortgage, and I wasn't directly involved with Caritzis at all. So he comes behind you and he puts his gun on you. Was there a moment there where you like, oh, I was in the Navy. I can kick the living hell out of this guy. Did you ever think about trying to end it there? Of course, you couldn't You couldn't obviously predict what was going to happen for the next several dozen hours. But No, actually, I when he first leveled the handgun at me, I looked him in the eye and I thought to myself, God, how can you let any man get so angry? I've read that quote from you in the star. I think that's a terrific quote because you must have dealt with people who, who either were denied their, their mortgage application or lost their house. I mean, it wasn't the greatest of economic times back then. So, well, it's, it's uh, a matter of fact, it wasn't very long after that, that I considered, I said, God, I, I don't know why uh, it's got in this way, but, uh, Let's 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 go at it. Uh, I thought I was a dead man. And was there any part of you that said, "Well, if he's going to kill me, then we're going to go down swinging"? I uh, I didn't give up. No, I uh, in fact uh, during most of the ordeal, I I kept thinking to myself, "I've got to show some kind. I got to stand up to, to this man. Maybe it'll help me." Uh, it may sound ambivalent, but I wasn't giving up, and I wasn't. Uh, I was. Uh, I, I was uh, going to do everything I could to survive. You're married at the time. Yes. How many children? Four. Were you thinking about them? Like, okay, I can either confront this fella or I can play along. And if I confront him, I may live, but I'll probably die since he has the gun. If I acquiesce for a little while, then there's a greater chance I'll see my family. I didn't think too much about my family, no. I uh, actually, as I look back on it, I was, I learned what the moment was during that whole ordeal. I, uh, I was starting to count uh, time, I, I guess, by the second. And I didn't, I didn't think much, out, much about anything else. 
so he confronts you with the, I think you said he had a handgun. At what point did the, because the iconic pictures are the, are the, the, you and him and the shotgun and the, I think it's called Dead Man's Wire. Isn't that right? Um, maybe I'm wrong on that, but I think that's right. Something like that, yes. At what point did the shotgun come out and that whole wiring start to happen? Almost immediately. Uh, after I put the plans on the table, he was standing behind me, and I turned around and looked at him. And he, had, uh, he said he explained to me that he was going to wire the shotgun to my head. And uh, he had me get down on my knees, as I, and uh, he went ahead and just uh, placed the shotgun in, in place. It was a violent time in America in the mid-'70s. <clears throat> you weren't that far away from the Manson murders, and you had Patty Hearst and various other bigger crime sprees terrorism was in full force with skyjackings and hijackings so crime was foremost in a lot of people's minds was there any doubt in your mind that this man could do what he said he would do if needed no i uh i didn't doubt that he was capable of of doing whatever he said he was going to do how much longer were you in the building before you were let outside? And at what point did the police become involved? Well, the police came involved, I guess, pretty quick because he called 9-11 and uh, he called the police department and he wanted them to know what he was doing. Uh, it's interesting when I didn't, realize I was in the office for an hour and a half. I thought we were in the office about 20 minutes. So you were in the office with him with the shotgun and the handgun and all that for about an hour and a half? That's correct. And what transpired during that time? Well, he, I, I obviously I don't remember too much about that, I guess, because uh, what transpired, but he was raving and ranting and, and calling all his friends and, and getting contacts in the police department. And uh, he was on the phone for, with the police for about an hour, I think, getting everything lined up. To, uh, we were leaving. He was getting us lined up to leave the building. That's what he was doing. Did you get the sense then or maybe have the sense since that manipulation of the news media or at least using the local media to blow up his status uh, was part of his plan all along yes I, I believe that so once you go outside and it's not exactly like it's august it's february it's freezing cold he leads you outside is your thought okay let's just let this man have his moment eventually it'll all calm down and I can go on with my life as the minutes became hours, then became multiple hours. Was there any thought of how is this going to end? I mean, the man's got to sleep. Well, there, it, it was stages. Uh, when I, as I indicated, when he first leveled the guns on me and strapped me to the gun, I, I figured this was it. And then I, I would get some encouragement and uh, he would actually be very friendly to me. 
and we would uh, discuss ordinary conversation and and uh, so I thought that there was a possibility that maybe maybe it would end well but um, I've read that before where it was very that the conversations that you all had were as as unhinged and unpredictable as the man himself. Yes, there's uh, there's the idea that uh, I I don't know what what Chris's state of mind really was, but I I do know that he would go from from crying about his mother to rage at me and all stages in between so one of the real problems i had was is trying the best i could to to figure out how to keep him calm the naval officer you're trained to fight and here you are in a life or death situation how did you control that urge to just fight to be combative in order to survive one way to be more passive in the hopes of surviving by a different way. There was an incident, or one of the main things that was going through in my flight training, we run approaches, instrument approaches, and, and you have to hit each of your inspection spots, your time spots, uh, on time, same altitude. And I was thinking that in addition to that, I had to do everything right. I had to do it correctly. And then I was flying into a blind canyon. And, and, and I, I, for some reason, it kept going through my mind, I've got to keep this thing on course. I've got to keep it so it'll land. And then I may survive. And uh, it's, they call it a box canyon. Or, or, mm-hmm. And I figured I only got one chance. And so I got kind of wrapped up with the idea that, that if I do everything right, then I may survive. Was it hard to know what right actually was? Yeah, it still is. <laughs> <laughs> Point taken. <laughs> After he, you spend about an hour and a half inside, he leads you outside on a very cold day. And you look at the photographs from that day and in that time period, that event, and the cops are all in their kind of Russian style hats and they've got, co- everyone's got coats on and everyone's all bundled up and there's Caritzis in short sleeves and you're just in a regular Oxford shirt, as I recall. What was that like just surviving that element? Well, when I left the office and walked down Washington Street, I made a comment to Chris that I was colder than all get out. And uh, I made, it, made that comment to him two or three times. I don't know what I expected him to do, but uh, I, I had a real recognition it was a cold day. And Did it matter to you that... the day not only was cold, but you were being paraded outside in front of your fellow citizens, almost like an animal. And were you embarrassed? Were you equally parts frightened? 
was it tough for you to endure having the public look at you paraded around like that? You know, that's interesting because he berated people around him. He berated a female officer tremendously. He berated a a minister. uh, I never thought about myself. Uh, I I never really thought that that, uh, I guess I had the idea that he shouldn't be doing this, but that's about as far as I went. How long did you spend outside in general, do you remember? No, we walked about five blocks and got in the police car, and then we went to the apartment. So, You went to his apartment, is that yes, correct? Right. How would you rate the performance of the police during the entire event? Oh, I'd say it was exceptional. I had no... Uh, I, I, and I had a, a, a real thought that they were really there to help me. And, uh, in fact, I, I kind of have always had that thought that they were something uh, of a extraordinary. They used restraint many times, and I appreciated that. Did you ever, like, just take the shot? Just try it. I'm going to die anyway, so maybe this be my only chance. Sure, I had a... A real uh, episode I like to talk about, actually. He laid a handgun. I sat in a chair for some of the time. He laid a handgun on the table beside me. And I had my hands handcuffed together in front of me. And he'd leave at the uh, living room to go in the kitchen from time to time. And I, during, I, I kept thinking I could grab that gun. And uh, when he came back, I'd shoot him. But I had trouble manipulating the gun, I thought, with my hands together. I thought that might give me a little trouble. But then I I got my own definition of reasonable doubt was, how do I know that gun is loaded? And Mm, if I I had it pointed, if I I pointed it at him, because he didn't like to get confronted at all. You said he left to go to another room. So where's the shotgun and the wire? He, it, the wire was long enough that he could go to from room. No, I didn't. Uh, he, the, the gun was not wired to my neck the entire time. I don't know how many hours it was. Maybe half the time I was wired to the shotgun. The other time I was under the the revolvers, and I was spent some time uh, uh, chained on the floor of the bathroom. I suppose that's when he rested, I guess, out, out in the uh, living room. Like one of the old claw tubs, cast iron claw tubs? He just no, changed to that? No, I say a bathroom. It was, just the, it was just the half bath. There was just a stool there, I remember. And, sure. And he, and he had me curled around that on the floor. It wasn't too large a bathroom. And he said, don't make any noise. If you make any noise, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do you in. And uh, I kind of joke about it from time to time. If you stay chained without the chain making a noise, it's kind of tough. On porcelain, maybe? Yeah. (laughs) During the time that you were were abducted, how many total hours? 90-something? 63. 63? 63, excuse me. Uh, Did you ever get a chance to talk to your family? 
to your yep. wife? Yep, yep. I talked to my dad on the phone. I talked to my wife on the phone. And uh, I guess those are the only two family members I talked with. Uh, one of the first calls he made, and I think Chris has uh, instigated this, and that was to my father down in Florida. He was in Fort Lauderdale. And uh, I called my dad, and, and uh, I was talking with him, and I was trying to convince dad that Chris was of a mind that we had harmed him, we, we had uh, hurt him, and, and we owed Chris something, and and uh, obviously this was this was a lie, but but I was thought it might appease Christus a little, and uh, and this was in his apartment. Yeah, and Christus uh, overheard my dad say uh, very clearly, "Well, we didn't do anything wrong." Uh-huh. And uh, I thought, Dad, I wish you wouldn't have said that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I guess it's funny now, but damn. Uh, so what was Kritz's response? Well, he said, I'm never going to let anybody talk on this phone without my monitoring it. And I'm, I'm, uh, he got all very upset about it. Did your father ever offer at all to like, okay, Tony, we'll give you what you want. We're sorry. I mean, did he, do you get the sense he didn't grasp how serious it was? I mean, it is 1977, so it's not exactly, no, 1970. Yeah, 1977. Uh, no internet, no cable. So you think your father may just not have grasped how critical the situation was? I think when I heard my dad say that, I said, that's my dad. He just said what he believed, and he always... Uh, I, 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 I don't... The, the fact that he knew what the situation was, I'm sure. I, I never talked with him about it. Uh, I never confronted him with that conversation, actually. I uh, always kind of embarrassed about that he'd think that I was felt ill of him or something. But Didn't affect Father's Day that year? No, no. We, uh, you got a card? We had four or five months. Yeah. <laughs> How did he react? Did you ask to speak to your wife? You know, I think, again, I think that call was initiated by Kritzis. Uh, I ha- I'll have to think. I, I, don't, I probably never will know. But uh, I talked to her at home, and uh, I uh, I told her, I said, uh, uh, I love you, and, and I love the kids, and be sure that, that uh, the kids are aware of that. And I said, you know, Chris is really a good-hearted guy. And uh, again, that's obviously I was trying to appease Chris, I guess. And he grabbed the phone, and he said, don't you believe that? I'm a black-hearted guy. And uh, he wanted to always make sure that that everybody knew what a what a what he was capable of. He wanted people to believe that he had it within him to pull that trigger. I believe that's true. 
how did you guys coexist together? He comes in to the to mortgage building. You're there about an hour and a half with him at gunpoint. He takes you outside. You're outside for however long. And then you get into a police car. He, he commandeers a police car that's running, drives to his apartment. He lived on the west side. Is that correct? Yes. And, uh, and then how long did you hang out on in his apartment? I hate to say hang out like you guys were watching a movie, but... Um, well, it was all all the rest of the time. It was about sixty hours, I suppose. He never took you outside again after that. Just to go to the, just to go to the what they refer to as the press conference. That went down out of the apartment across an open ground to a community building. What do you think the genesis of the press conference was? How did that come about? Chris has wanted the world to know that he'd been worked over. And he wanted national attention. And the he called for the press to be there and and I I truly believe that that was what was really the motivation throughout this whole ordeal was he wanted to to have the press and the and the uh, ha- have the press very much involved in everything he did did you get the sense that the news conference was a chance for him to let off steam like let him have his word out the more that he vents and the more that he uh, tries to get the support of the news media and the people and sympathy the more quickly this will be over. I uh, I didn't have that sense. No, uh, I was still fearful that that uh, something was going to really go wrong. And uh, he had uh, he had me start to read all his grievances, and, uh, and then he grabbed it from me, and uh, he berated me to some reason it wasn't quick enough pulled on you i remember there's pictures of you like wincing as he's pulling the wire because the wire's back around you at this yeah yeah he's uh and i had i had cuts on my neck i mean and uh and he would uh emphasize i guess yeah he would he would pull me around actually lead me around did you feel safer when you were out in the public like that, as opposed to being in his apartment? You know, I've never thought about that, but I didn't feel safe at all in the press conference. Uh, one, of the, one of the senses I had was there was a couple of fellows that were crowding me quite a bit. It was very crowded. Very media cr- members or police officers? Media members. And they were... Uh, and I was trying to tell them through clenched teeth to to get back. I, I had a sense that if he, if Chris just got too crowded, he might react. Where did the news conference take place? I believe it was in a community building. You're listening to Le- the Leaders and Legends podcast. We're on today with Richard Hall, who in February 19... 19- 
77, was abducted by Tony Kritzis in a particularly harrowing true crime event in Indianapolis's formative years, modern Indianapolis's formative years. The media member most associated with with your kidnapping is Fred Heckman, who was a radio reporter for WIBC. Talk a little bit, please, about what role you think he <clears throat> did play in keeping you alive, keeping Karitzis uh, from pulling the trigger. Well, I'm I'm I appreciate you talking about Fred Heckman because. I believe that it's his conduct and conversation that kept me alive. Uh, he seemed to have a a, a, a relationship with Kritzis, and he could talk him down. And uh, uh, to this day, I, I I used to I listened to all the conversations, and and I was thinking, how in the world is Heckman? being so savvy i mean he, the, the question sometimes i can't recall right now but he would challenge and, and uh, talk with heckman and i guess what i'm most like to to convey is is that uh, i think heckman uh, he made it uh possible to, to keep Kritzis somewhat at bay. And how exactly did he do that? Like, Tony, we get it. You were screwed over by the system. Tony, you're a better man than this. I mean, was it, was it conjoling? Was it praising? Was it sort of kind of like empathy? What do you think his technique was that was so successful? Well, I, I, uh, I would say that that Christus had a lot of trust for whatever reason in Fred Heckman, uh, and it's never been established that they had a prior relationship. I've never read that. Maybe no, I never did either. But uh, so, and they would set uh, times when they would talk, and, and uh, it was almost um, now that I'm thinking about it somewhat that that Heckman was kind of like a father figure to Christus. Um, but it was, uh, to, as far as I'm concerned, Fred Heckman showed a lot of savvy in that whole affair. To jump ahead a little bit before we come back, <clears throat> were you able after the ordeal to talk to Fred Heckman under different circumstances? Yes, I met him on a social occasion or two, and, and uh, I didn't talk with him at length. I just told him that we had somewhat of a bond, and he agreed with that. And uh, I never got to really express nor I, my feelings, my, my appreciation to him. Did he get a sense that, that he was one of—do you get the sense that he felt like, even though he was a member of the media, that he felt he had an obligation to try to— prevent this tragedy I don't know what motivated him I know that he got an awful lot of criticism by getting involved in a in, in the situation and putting himself in as a participant rather than an observer who criticized him the press what was his response so be it Richard Hall's alive yeah 
after the news conference is finished, how much longer did you have in Kritz's clutches? Very short. I mean, after, uh, actually, and now I don't have a good recollection, I guess. Uh, my, I do recall that they had shears. They cut the, cut the cables, cut the, the, the lines, and uh, and they. It's been said that I somehow got released and I ran from the room. I don't remember that, but I'm told uh, that uh, that I got out of there very quickly. You mentioned before about how can a man be so angry? In your view, was the angriest you saw Karitzis during the ordeal? the time at the news conference? Do you think that was a lot of show? No, I don't, I don't have that idea that uh, he displayed any, himself any differently during the news conference than he did during most of, my, uh, during most of the episode. Um, he, he, he would spew hate. Uh, and he, he would spew hate at individuals. Um, and he also made a comment, of course, that that uh, only only part that I do remember is he said, "I'm a I'm a GD national hero." Yeah, that's right. And I don't know where that came from, although it would fit in with his winning the press and, and, the, and the exposure. And you'd said before you kind of thought that was part of his plan all along. I th- that's what I think. And it was kind of a time, the <clears throat> 70s were a time for sort of the everyman folk hero. Um, and there are other examples we could name, but very few of them uh, trying to get it through this method. It might be noted that uh, he had a plan to uh, kill my dad and two brothers and myself. When we walked to lunch, he had a location across the street. He knew where we usually ate lunch. Where was that? At the Cozy Restaurant on uh, Pennsylvania Street. And um, he knew our pattern and... uh, and he said he didn't do that. I, I, don't know, I, I don't know why he said he didn't do it now. I, I, I forget. But uh, I've, I've, think about that. I've thought about that from time to time. It's part of his, you know, what, it, what was going through his mind, his attitude, his motivation. What do you think made him give up after 60-some hours? Well, he got the promise of immunity. They... Uh, the the local government said that they wouldn't there was about four or five uh, um, uh, articles of immunity that that he was granted uh, one of which we gave him a, a five million dollar note and uh, and he he uh, I I believe he felt that that was all true. So they offered Kritzis all this stuff to get you uh, freed. Would you have basically offered anything? Like, whatever it takes to get me out of this man's 
uh, way, just do it and then we'll worry about it later. Yeah, that was our general attitude. Uh, whether it was admitting to the, the wrongs that we supposedly did him, uh, gave him the money. Uh, the, the immunity uh, idea was one of the, you know, they talk about the Stockholm Syndrome, which I've tried to think about a little bit after this. And after 63 hours, you start. But he said, Dick, he said, uh, they're giving me immunity. And I knew that. And he says, the, the, the state has uh, agreed to this and agreed to that. And uh, I'm, 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 uh, it's good. And I said, well, Tony, you got state immunity, but what about federal immunity? You negotiated against yourself? Yes. Yeah, that's Stockholm Syndrome-esque. <laughs> <laughs> Did he go... I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, that's what he said. He said, oh, my gosh, and he called some of the lawyers, and, and, uh, and wanted, he, brought the, he brought the issue up, and, and it finally died. I think he, they finally convinced him that there was some situation where— The food and lodgings at the Kritz's <laughs> Arms were just so good, you didn't want to go? <laughs> Mr. Hall, that's actually pretty funny. Good for you. <laughs> well, I guess it just proves you're an honest man. <laughs> so— Talk a little bit, please, about the moment of your release. Well, the the one, the first thing I remember about it uh, is laying in a gurney. They they uh, provided a, a gurney, put me on a gurney, and an FBI agent came up to me, Mulvaney, I think was his name. He's the negotiator. And uh, I also think that he contributed quite a bit to getting an ease on this situation. And uh, for some reason, uh, I appreciated him coming up and, and, and he introduced himself and said who he was. And that was the last I've ever seen of him. But he played a big part. And... Uh, from there, I went to the hospital, and they gave me an exam, all kinds of exams, and I don't know whether it's a criminal procedure, that's what they go through. Um, and then I went home, and I don't recall uh, too much. I know Mara Hudnut was uh, in, in the hospital room, and and uh, I don't know if my wife was. I don't, I, I just, I'm a complete blank. And uh, the last I remember was, the first thing I remember was, was being home in my breakfast nook. And then I went to bed shortly after that. But when, when you were actually released, cut loose, did the police come through the door and say, I mean, did, did Kritzis say, okay, Dick, it's over. They're giving me what I want. So we're going to, I'm going to let you go. I mean, did you know that the release was coming or did it happen suddenly? Oh, I didn't know it was coming. No. Uh, I, uh, and I don't, I don't, I can't answer that question. It's just a blank for me. You would think that I would be very exalted, I'd be very exhilarated about being free, but I, I, I don't remember it. Kritzis then goes on trial for multiple crimes, despite the immunity he was granted, or I guess not granted, and he is acquitted. 
Were you, he was acquitted because of, he pled insanity and that was before the law was changed. Back then, if memory serves, the prosecution had to prove that you weren't sane and then they subsequently changed the law probably in tandem with Hinckley getting away with shooting Ronald Reagan and claiming insanity. Uh, they changed the law so that you had to prove you were insane. And I think I have that correct. So please disabuse me if I don't. Mm-hmm. Um, did you attend the trial at all as a, as a spectator or no. just as a witness or what was your role in the trial mm-hmm. and what was your reaction to the verdict? I did not attend the trial except to testify, and my testif- testimony was very short, very brief. I I, uh, I, I don't remember. Uh, they did ask me the question I, I, that I kind of feared or thought about it for a long time, whether I thought he was insane or not. And uh, I had... I had really had counseling with my minister for about six months, once a, once a week, trying to honestly answer that question. And for some reason, I got fixed in my mind that that was going to be critical to Christus going free or not. And uh, but in any event, uh, I decided that I just wasn't in a position to judge his his uh, insanity. Uh, uh, and I dodged, I dodged it on, on that. Your reaction to the verdict? I, uh, <clears throat> it was the reaction of other people that bothered me more than, than my reaction. I think uh, I got wind that uh, that the that there was a pacer game, I guess, and about eighty percent of the crowd cheered when they said Christus was found not guilty that that hurt and did you do you get the sense that he was successful in portraying himself as a wronged average ordinary joe working class guy who was punked out by the rich people and the system and the banks and that he succeeded in at least leaving that impression to the general public yeah, I, I think he. I I I I'm of that opinion. I I saying that the little guy won out over the big guy. After the verdict, and he's committed for several years. Correct? Do I have this yeah, right? He, he's committed, and he's served about ten years. Ten years. So. Were you given notice that he was going to be released? No, I wasn't. Come to think of it, no. And so were you, once you read in the paper or saw on the news or heard on the radio that he was going to be released, did you think of him every time you walked out of your door, got out of your car, walked into a restaurant, tried to do business? No, I, uh, I was of opinion that, that Christus was through with me in the first place. I, I didn't think, uh, you'd served your purpose. I'd served my purpose. And, um, I also, um, I also had an expression that I used for years and years in my own mind that I was more afraid of his mouth than I was of his of his physical actions. Because, uh, as you said, he berated everybody, not just you. Yeah. 
but you weren't afraid that you would like run into him at the Denny's or at a Pacers game or the track or the mall? No, I really wasn't. But if you had, would you just kick the living hell out of him? Uh, well, because <laughs> if he because if he can plead temporary insanity and get away with what he did, I'm pretty sure you could have gotten off if you had beaten the hell out of him in the middle of Ellis Hairs. No, I never had those thoughts. When you were released, rescued by the police, at a certain point, given what you said earlier, and maybe or maybe I'm wrong, there must have been a gun nearby. Did you? think well here's my chance yeah i thought about that quite a bit i uh, i don't know if i could kill a person or not and that was uh, that was going through my mind but he deserved it do you think or no well i take the position that he shouldn't do that nobody should go through what i went through in other words in that sense, yeah, I think he deserved. Uh, but I didn't have the idea that, that I was going to administer the justice. Yeah, I, I just didn't have the idea that I could. Sh- I, I don't know. I don't know what I could do. There must have been times during the ordeal where you were scared of him. And then maybe there were times, and I would ask you if there were times during the ordeal where you felt sorry for him. But... In the subsequent years, 40 years past now, is there a day that goes by that you don't resent him? Well, I've been asked the question, I think it's related, have I forgiven him? And um, I, I, I kind of dodged that a little bit. I, I used the old expression that that uh, maybe I forgive what he did. I'll, I'll never, what do you do? You forgive the man, you don't forgive the action. And uh, I've, I've felt uh, many times that uh, the, the, they, they judged him a paranoid schizophrenic. And uh, I sometimes have an idea that that um, he he couldn't help himself isn't it just as possible that he just was an angry punk loser well he demonstrated that most of his life that he was of that nature um, we had evidence that that he was uh, active Actively, he he could act out. He was dangerous. We we'd heard some stories. We should have never lent him the money in the first place. Did any of your family members? I mean, he's an eminently recognizable guy, unless he got rid of the sideburns and the Johnny Unitas haircut. Did your kids or wife or brothers or dad or anyone ever see him ever after the ordeal? No, that I, not that I know of. What do you think, as we wind up the podcast today, what do you think of Indianapolis's memory of you? Well, I've got evidence that, that uh, 
they say you know you, you can't uh, win all the people all the time or, or something. There's a lot of folks that that still think that we screwed him over, and that uh, that bothers me. But people get punked out on mortgages and loans all the time, and they don't pull out a shotgun and parade someone and kidnap them for sixty hours. So they're not. Are they arguing for real that okay, maybe the scales? didn't fall in his favor this time. They're certainly not justifying his actions, are there? Despite the cheers of the Pacers crowd that night? Well, I'm not... Uh, I I don't know why the, the public uh, thinks the way they do. Um... I know that it's 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 been the it's it's if there's been any harm to me and my family, it's I was in business dealing with the public, and 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 your public, what the public thinks of you is is a very big part of of, of your operation. And he took that away, a lot of that away from me, and I. And from that, I, I am. I'm. I'm resentful. So, the new day happens. It's February twelfth, thirteenth, fourteenth, fifteenth. What are you doing in the days afterward? Talk a little bit, please, about your life for the next decades before you retired. What was it like to be Richard Hall in this city? Well, it was it was very new to me to go through a, a, a checkout line at, at Kroger's and have the checkout lady say, "Well, you're Dick Hall," and 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 often they would you would run into people that, that re- remember the incident, remembered your picture. And, and so that was, uh, it got to be kind of distressful in a way. And how long did that go on before it finally just kind of faded? Or does it happen today? It still happens today. So you go to the MCL, you go to get your hair cut, you go to get gas or go to... Well, not to that extent, no. It's, it, people usually uh, uh, will, will, when they find out that I was the guy, then, then they have the reaction. They'll tell the story. I yeah. saw it. I was there. Yeah. I was, what was it like? Just a two, couple more questions before we end for the day. What was it like the next time you went into that office? your office on Market Street? You know, it, it, uh, there wasn't that much difference. I, I, uh, I think that uh, everybody kind of went their own way, and, and uh, we did have uh, some of our management got together, and, and we had s- some decision making at, at that time and, and had to confront the, the whole situation but as far as the people in the office there wasn't that much discussion we celebrate a lot of anniversaries in this country uh, we're a very 
history-minded people. And every year, the same date, the same day rolls around, February 8th. What's that day like for you every year? I recognize the date. I uh, Do you dread it's coming? No. No, I don't, but... Uh, now that you mention it and I think about it, I always maybe comment to some other person that this is the crisis, this is the date I was apprehended. I have to admit that uh, there isn't a February 8th that goes by probably that I haven't recognized that date. Before we leave the podcast, if you'd like to take a second and talk about your book, because I don't want to forget that, that's available on Amazon and it's also at critsisatme.com. Go right ahead. Well, we uh, we did finally write the book. People have asked me after forty years, why did you write it? And uh, actually, one of my one of the reasons is one of my one of my uh, my son said, "Dad, I don't want people to think that you're a wimp. I want, I want your grandkids to to think ill of you. So why don't you write a book?" And that that was uh, so I did, and and we're. Uh, published it now for about two years and it's available at Barnes and Noble also I guess and and uh, we hope that uh, if uh, they're interested that folks might enjoy reading it we're very honored to have a brave and courageous man Richard Hall on the leaders and legends podcast today we can't thank you enough for your honesty and your candor and your kindness on being with us today we are uh, terrifically pleased to have this conversation. Unfortunately, I'm one of the kids who remember it. I was very young and I'm very grateful for you to uh, come share that story, this piece of Indianapolis, piece of Indianapolis history that's infamous and harrowing, but yet here you are uh, with a smile on your face a lot during the podcast and a great sense of humor and well, we enjoyed having you on today. Thank you very much, Mr. Hall. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.